The final Antichrist. What do we know about this coming world ruler? Open the book of Daniel with us and find out. We are going to see lots of Antichrists. And we have seen lots of Antichrists, right? But there is a final Antichrist that's coming, and he's the one that we're reading about. And let me tell you, he's no joke. He's the one that is going to be the ultimate of them all, right? He is the final, he's the ultimate, and he is very, very wicked. I have found that peace only comes from me. That joy only comes from you Cause all I need is you Hello and welcome to the weekend edition of Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. Pastor James is currently taking us through the Old Testament book of Daniel and we're near the end of that book. We'll be in chapter 11 today, which speaks of the coming world ruler known as the final Antichrist and an unprecedented and unrivaled time of trouble. Let's begin today's teaching and see what we can learn about it. Here's Pastor James. As we have been getting into the last part of uh, verse 35 of chapter 11, of course, we've been talking about many of the things that have been fulfilled in the past. The last person that we were speaking about was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the one that received that title, literally Antiochus IV. And it's very interesting because as we've been talking about him, we see a very fast distinction being made. It's a very important distinction. That is at the latter part of verse 35, right? And this was the sort of the portion of this verse that tells us that from this point on, we are now going to be talking about a future time, right? We're going to be talking about the last days. So looking at the last part of verse 35, well, I can just read the whole verse. It says, and some of them, and of course we went over this last week. It says, and some of them understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end, right? And then notice this, because it is yet for a time appointed. So yet for a time appointed, we're now being pushed into the future as we get into verse 36. Now there are a lot of people that will try to fit verse 36 all the way through verse 45 into what we saw with Antiochus Epiphanes in the past, but it doesn't fit. There's just no way, there's no historical precedent to settle it. Absolutely, especially when we start getting into the description of this world war and what's going to be happening, there's just absolutely no way. So we are talking about the one to come. We are talking about the future and final Antichrist uh, that is around the corner. And I think that it's appropriate to bring up several facts about the Antichrist that, of course, we have already talked about, and uh, it's kind of an important thing. First of all, is there any way for us to know who the Antichrist is going to be? Quick answer. No, that's right. Why? Because the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, very specifically in verse 3, tells us that we cannot know who the final Antichrist is because he won't be revealed to the world until Christians are raptured. And last time I've checked, we have not been raptured. And so thus, we're not going to know who the final Antichrist is. And it's a very interesting thing, but we do know some facts about who the final Antichrist is in the sense that we'll know some characteristics about him, so on and so forth. 
And of course, I've talked about many of the characteristics based on what we read in Daniel chapter 7, 8. Um, as we went back earlier on in Daniel, we even uh, talked a little bit about what Daniel, the kind of precedent that was laid for us, even in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where we talk about the strengthening of the covenant with many. And so we talked about all of this stuff. So we know a lot about what the Antichrist is going to do. We know a lot about who the Antichrist is in the sense of we learn uh, facts about him, although we don't know his actual identity. And that's a very important distinction. We need to remember that, that we don't know his identity. We're not going to know his identity until he is revealed here after the rapture, okay? So we're going to be gone. We're out of the picture, so we're not going to know who he is. Everybody who's saying that it's Trump, there's no way it can be Trump. I can promise you that right now for lots of reasons, and we'll talk about why those reasons are. The peace treaty that he helped to sign is actually a very good thing. It's not a bad thing, and we'll talk about that as well. And um, I think it's a good thing for uh, different reasons than are being popularly expressed by lots of people, even by Bible prophecy teachers. I think the, the goodness of this type of thing exists for other reasons, and some people might even talk about it. I've done some analysis on it, by the way, already, but I think that it's important for us to constantly be going over this because the more equipped we are concerning these facts, the better of an understanding we're going to have regarding what the scriptures teach about these things, and it's going to help us and keep us from coming to very erroneous conclusions, right? And so all of these things are very important for us to be able to know, to establish, and to be able to create some kind of a precedent to be able to understand what we're actually looking at here, right? So we know lots of things about him. We know that he is, well, I believe this. I think he's going to come from what we call the revived Roman Empire. I am convinced of the fact that he's going to be a Gentile. I don't think he's going to have any regard at all for anything related to that of the Jewish culture or background. I think that he'll very likely be coming from the area of Greece or Rome. I'm convinced of that. I, I don't think that there's any way you're going to be able to convince me otherwise. There's a lot of biblical precedent. And what we're actually about to read right now, um, as we get into the next few verses, is going to make that very clear for us. So let's jump right in to verse 36. It says, and the king shall do according to his will, right? By the way, it's very interesting when we talk about Antichrist when we talk about him being instead of the real Christ, instead of the real Messiah, you've got to understand that most of the characteristics associated with this final Antichrist are going to be virtually opposite of anything Christ would ever do. Or you could also say, and it would be a reasonable statement to make this, that what this final Antichrist will be doing, or a majority of what he will be doing, is in essence a fake, right? It really is not the real thing. And so um, when it talks about him doing his own will, you got to keep in mind the whole epitome of Christ's life was to do what? Was to do the will of the Father, right? He said it. He said, I didn't come to this earth to do my will. I came to the earth to do the will of my Father. This Antichrist has expressed, he says, I am going to do my will. It's completely not what Christ would do, completely different from the real Messiah. And yet he is going to choose to do whatever he wants. And this Antichrist, uh, this final Antichrist is going to do exactly that. So he's going to do according to his own will. And notice this, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. By the way, this is very interesting when you think about this. He'll exalt himself and magnify himself. You know, it's interesting. Christ even, who was God, saw himself to be lowered below for the sake of us 
right? He actually put himself in a position where he said, we're going to glorify the Father, right? And so he's God. He deserves all praise. He deserves all glory. Yet his example to us is completely different. The final Antichrist, of course, he doesn't care, right? He's going to do whatever he wants. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to magnify himself above every God. In other words, he doesn't care and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. So we know that he is going to raise himself up above all gods. He's going to really elevate himself. He's going to demand to be worshipped as God. This is a very, very important thing that we have to understand regarding the Antichrist. We learned this, by the way, Revelation chapter 13. We also learned this earlier on in Daniel, that he is going to demand to be worshipped as God. We're going to even see it here, or we are seeing it here. And the only way that he is going to be put to a stop is when God turns him off, right? Is when God puts him to a stop. And as we're going to find out at the end of this passage, there is going to be a culminating world war that's going to take place. The Antichrist is going to be quite successful in that world war as they grow dissatisfied with him and seek to attack him. He's going to be very, very good at defeating them. And then he's going to hear about some other attackers that are coming from uh, the east and are coming from other areas. And um, he's going to actually even begin to prevail even in that until God comes into the picture during this final battle in, in Armageddon, right, that God comes by. And he basically, with his mouth, he just shuts it all down, right? It's just over with. In the second coming, we know that this type of thing is going to happen. These final wars that we're talking about can be very confusing, but we'll talk about the distinctions between some of these wars and what actually happens, right? So this is very interesting what we see happening here, but God is going to shut him down, basically. And that's what's going to take place, and we're going to know what happens. We're going to understand what this picture actually looks like. So he is, God is going to shut him down. That'll be the only thing that uh, shuts him down. Look at this in verse Verse 37, it says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now, there's a lot of people that will read this phrase and say, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. And they will say that this means that the Antichrist has to be a Jew because of the phrase, the God of his fathers. What this phrase actually says, and it's in a bad translation in the King James, right, is it is a plural form of God. It's Elohim. This phrase Elohim, by the way, was a generic form of God. It was the same kind of use of God that we would use when we would say uh, theos in Greek, right? It's the same word God that we use here in the English language. And I know there's a lot of people that don't understand that uh, because they're always taught about how unique the phrase Elohim is. Elohim is probably the most, in many cases, one of the most generic terms that are used to refer to God in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so when he talks about not regarding the God of his fathers, it's actually saying here, not regarding the God's of his fathers. In other words, when it says he will not regard the gods of his fathers, what he's saying is, is he's saying what Daniel is telling us, what we're seeing in this vision is he's not going to regard any God. Okay. He's not going to have any regard for any God or any religion. And so we see that in verse 36, he'll have no regard for any gods. And then he makes it very, very clear. He's not going to have any regard for even the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we talk about the gods of his fathers, in other words, he is is not going to be a religious person like the human race before him, right? That all of mankind before him, he's not going to have any regard for anything religious at all. And that's in essence what's being said here. It's not saying that he's a Jew and that he's going to deny the God of his fathers, as you might think it's saying here. That's not what's actually being said. It's referring to the fact that this man is going to be a non-religious man. 
In other words, he's going to be completely secular and he's going to have no respect for anybody's gods. Why? Because he regards himself as God himself and that's it. And there is no other God in his mind except himself. Okay, so that's what it's actually being said. Now, there's two mistakes that people make from this passage. They say that he's going to be a Jew and then people come to the erroneous conclusion that he's going to be a homosexual. And they say that based on the next phrase here that's actually worded. It says here, and I already read the first phrase, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Okay. So just so that you know, when it says, nor the desire of women, what he's saying is he's not going to regard the God of his fathers. In other words, he's not going to regard any God. He's not going to be a religious person, nor is he going to regard the Messiah. Just so that you know, when you look at this phrase in Hebrew and in Greek, the desire of women, when you look at this, no regard the desire of women, the desire of women was a title that was oftentimes given to the Messiah, right? Because it was the desire of every Jewish woman to give birth to the Messiah, okay? So when it says he will not have the regard or nor the desire of women, in other words, he is not going to uh, have any regard for the Messiah. He's not going to believe in this Messiah that's coming. He's not going to believe in God. And then notice it would make very, very clear here the context of all of this in verse 37 is his disdain for all religion and all gods. And we know that that's the context because look what he says after he says the desire of women, nor regard any god. So he's making it very, very clear. He says, we're talking about this is a guy who's not going to have any religious regard. He's going to hate all religions, all gods. Why? And it says it right here. It gives the answer right at the very end of verse 37. For he shall magnify himself above all. In other words, he is going to be a person who is going to lift himself up. So there's many things that we know, right? He's not going to care about God. He's not going to care about any God, including the God of Israel. He's going to hate Jesus. Right? Because he has no regard for the desire of women, which means he's going to hate Jesus. He's going to hate anything that relates to Jesus, right? And he is going to elevate himself above everything. So this is a guy who is pretty evil. And by the way, can I just simply say, you look at this guy and you think, oh my gosh, what a heinous person. You know, we all look at the final Antichrist and we think a guy who's, who's got horns coming from his head and we think, Aah! and we think the smoke coming and everything. But truth be told, there are a lot of Antichrists that have lived prior to him that carry these same characteristics that were viewed as and regarded as heroes by many people, and still are regarded as heroes. If you don't believe me, spend time reading about Black Lives Matter, Inc. They'll talk to you about some of the heroes that they've regarded. Marx is one of them, another form of antichrist that lived during a certain period of time in our history, right? It's interesting, by the way, this is something some people may not know. You look at the symbol where they put the fist up like this, the symbol of of Black Lives Matter, Inc. Did you guys know that it's the same symbol of the Marxist movement? It's the exact same symbol, by the way. They stole it from the Marxist communist movement and they simply put it a different color and it's their symbol. But people don't know that. People don't think about it. People don't consider it. It's a form, one of the antichrists, one of many antichrists that have lived on this earth. And it's really, really simple how when you look at Marx, Marx had no regard for any God. He had no regard for any religion. He had no regard for the Messiah. He hated the Messiah. He hated Christ, right? And what did he do? He exalted himself. 
And it's interesting, when these founders of Black Lives Matter continue to identify themselves as trained Marxists, they're saying, we're carrying on the tradition that Marx taught us, in essence. And so it's very interesting how we continue to see, that's why I always use the term final antichrist. I stole it from Don Stewart. Yes, I did. But that's why I use the term final antichrist, because we are going to see lots of antichrists. And we have seen lots of antichrists, right? But there is a final antichrist that's coming, and he's the one that we're reading about. And let me tell you, he's no joke. He's the one that is going to be the ultimate of them all, right? He is the final, he's the ultimate, and he is very, very wicked, right? Notice this in verse 38. It says, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. It's very interesting. What it's basically saying is, although he's going to be secular, he will use the function of religion to be able to accomplish his purposes. In other words, he is going to make a God of the secular humanistic God, right? There's going to be a materialistic aspect of him, but that really isn't going to be the essence of what he does. He is going to use false religion. He is going to use the worship of false gods to manipulate and move his purposes and accomplish his purpose. That's why the false prophet's going to come into the picture, right? Who is in essence going to be the fake spiritual leader of what the Antichrist does. He's the one we, we learn about, of course, in the book of Revelation. It's very, very interesting how this is all uh, described. And so, by the way, he's going to be a filthy rich man. He's going to be crazy rich, you guys. And that's something else that a lot of people uh, don't recognize or realize. He's going to be extraordinarily rich. By the way, this is very interesting. And no, I am not saying that this man is the Antichrist or could be the Antichrist. I'm not saying that. But I am pointing some things out that there are people who are extraordinarily rich in this country that nobody knows about. Okay, really quickly. And if you know what I'm going to say, then please don't give me the answer. But who is the world's richest man according to the media right now? Anybody? You ruined it. <laughs> it. You're right. He is the richest man in the world, but he's not the richest man in the world according to the media. You're absolutely right. See, you're too well taught. That's the thing. You're way too well educated. I'll explain what she just said in a second. Everybody would say Bezos, right? The owner of Amazon, that he's worth a tremendous amount of money. I think they said last he's like worth $100 billion or something like that. They say he's the richest man in the world. Not true. Not true. We have extraordinarily educated Bible students that are here that are paying attention to what's going on in the world. And I don't know if you heard the answer. She said Putin. She's right. He is known as absolutely the wealthiest man in the world. And it's funny that wealth was not obtained correctly in the sense that it's not like he didn't do it, you know, by the book. I'm not saying that he did it, you know, above board or so on and so forth. But right now he is the richest man in the world. And it would make sense that a world leader is actually one of the richest men in the world if not the richest man in the world. And it just, the only reason why I bring that up is because it goes to show how easily a world leader can become extraordinarily rich. That's all I'm saying. It just goes to show that. By the way, we've been given examples of how world leaders can use their influence in order to gain an insane amount of riches, right? Um, and actually, it's so encouraging for me to even hear anybody say Putin because that just means people are reading and studying. I'm so proud, proud. Anyway, I'm very proud. It's so cool. However, look at some examples of world leaders taking advantage of wealth. Think this through for a minute. Look, look at this. How about our former vice president? Our former vice president used his influence to be able to make his family wealthy, right? The net worth of his family is believed to be well over a billion dollars. And a lot of people say that that's directly at the hand of China, right? 
The point is, is it look at how bad these people are and look at how evil they are. They're the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. But the point is, is that it's very, very easy for people to take their power that they have from being world leaders and to use it to make themselves wealthy. And this Antichrist is going to be no exception. This final Antichrist, he is going to be a very, 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 very wealthy man. And he's going to use his wealth and his riches and his power to accomplish the evil purposes that he wants to accomplish, okay? Uh, look at this. It says in verse 39, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause uh, them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And again, uh, this is one of those things where we see him using the world and the relationships that he develops amongst the world to develop his own benefit. And of course, uh, we're going to see this being done through the treaties that he puts together. We're going to see this being done through the operations that he continues to execute. And he's going to do a very, very, very good job with this. By the way, it is really interesting because this is why I say what President and Trump has actually done is a very un-Antichrist-like maneuver, okay? Just so that you know, the peace treaty that was actually signed, okay, which everybody refers to as the Abraham Accords, has nothing to do with the ability for President Trump to develop even more independent wealth, right? The treaties of this final Antichrist will be for the purpose of being able to grow and continue to exhaust his independent wealth, Okay, he's not concerned about a about a real or lasting peace. He's only concerned about appearances that allow him to manipulate nations and allow him to manipulate people for his own gain. The president of the United States has done no such thing. As a matter of fact, the president of the United States has allowed this peace treaty to be executed in a way where, quite frankly, there's been a lot of uh, loss on his part for doing what he's done. There's been a lot of sacrifice on his part for being able to do what he's done. And unlike many of these peace treaties, it's very interesting how certain processes have been accomplished without the loss or the contingent of land being given away, which is something very unique with these recent peace treaties. Thank you for joining us today for Light on the Hill. Pastor James Cadiz will be right back. We're studying Daniel here on the weekends. If you missed any portion of the study, log on to lightonthehillradio.com and click on Radio Show or listen through our Light on the Hill app. In the search bar, just type Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. You can also look for Light on the Hill wherever you get your podcasts. God is our great provider here at Light on the Hill, and we look to Him for guidance and provision at all times. If you'd like to stand with us, either through a one-time gift or ongoing support, please visit lightonthehillradio.com. You can also give through our Light on the Hill app. We left off in Daniel chapter 11 at verse 40 a moment ago. Here's Pastor James to close our time. Look at what it goes on to say as we jump into verse 40. It says, And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall uh, come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. We'll talk about this in a minute because now we're talking about the beginning of a war. By the way, I want to make something very clear to you because I know that there is a lot of confusion with respect to these wars, let me tell you what this war is not. This is not the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39, okay? Ezekiel 38 and 39 has already happened at this point. I think that that's an important distinction to be able to tell you guys. It's already happened. This is a war that is happening just before the second coming of Christ. 
Okay, that's what this is. And remember, the second coming of Christ is not the rapture. The rapture happens, then the second coming of Christ happens at the end of the tribulation period, okay? So we're talking about two completely different instances. And with respect to the wars that we're reading about here, we're also talking about, and this is an important distinction for us to be able to make, we're also talking about different wars here. We are not talking about the same war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. One thing I should probably also say with respect to the Antichrist and the maneuvering that he's going to do and so on and so forth is the treaties that he is signing here, I promise you, is going to involve a lot of concessions by a lot of people. And people are going to give up a lot to be able to get uh, what they want, which in essence is going to be a lasting peace. And the Antichrist is going to bring an appearance of that. And it's funny, too. The modern Jews reject the idea that Jesus, in any way or in any fashion, could actually be the Messiah. And the reason for that is because they believe that the Messiah would never be the Son of God, right? However, the Jews back in the day of Christ, they completely accepted the fact that the Messiah would be the Son of God. Because they read passages like the Psalms, they understood passages like Isaiah, they understood the promises of all of these things where they knew that the Messiah would be the Son of God. It's a very big different thing. If you go to a Jew today and you ask them, how are you going to know that the Messiah is here, what the Jew will tell you, this is what they'll tell you almost every single time without exception and not blink. You know what they're going to tell you? They're going to say, um, we'll know that he's the Messiah when he can build us our temple. That's exactly what they're going to do. So a lot of people say, well, how are they going to accept him as a Messiah when he's a Gentile? Easily. Because their condition for the acceptance of the Messiah has nothing to do with the roots of their forefathers and the tracing back to their identity in that sense. The idea, their prerequisite for who the Messiah is going to be is a political savior, in essence, who is going to be able to broker peace with Arab nations and at the same time is going to be allow them to be able to build their temple. Now, mind you, that would have to be a very significant thing because that would mean they would have to destroy the mosque that's sitting on the Golden Dome because I believe that the temple will be built right on top of where that mosque is, they'll have to destroy that mosque and they'll have to erect the temple, which, by the way, is an impossibility right now. It's a complete impossibility. We'll finish up this message in Daniel chapter 11 next weekend on Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. This radio outreach is listener-supported and brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you, cause all I need is